0: Hi, this is Panel Beater, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and wellbeing. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page. It's me, Panel Beater, with me in the studio is Dr Dilemma, Dr Neo and via Skype we've got Dr Sharma. Good morning to the three of you one and all. Good morning, good morning and happy Sunday. And yeah, thank you Radio
1: Marinara, for keeping our government uh, on their toes. Wasn't that good? I I love a little bit of radio activism.
0: I know, I love it. No, no, really, really good, really good. Dr Sharma, just check in, Uh, you're hearing us loud and clear, yeah, Uh, coming through via the tech
2: Absolutely, I can hear you, Your your smooth baritone. <laughs> <laughs>
3: hear them a, while, a mile away.
2: <laughs> a much cultivated. <laughs> Are you well,
0: Dr. Sharma? Oh, and that is, that, is a lo- that, that is a loaded question. question to
2: ask. I've had a closed shave with uh, with COVID, for, with a close contact. So you know, just uh, rolling with the with the rapid tests and and PCRs and everything else. Um, and it's hard to tell sometimes if you're symptomatic or you're just being a bit paranoid. And so at Radiotherapy, we like to uh, play it safe. And yeah. uh, I'm joining you all remotely.
0: Erring on the side of caution. As much as I want seven days off work, I don't want it like that. No, no, no. <laughs> we can again. do that though, I mean. <laughs> Dr Neo, you
1: well? I am. I am. I've just come off um, a month of nights, um, which is... Th- the longest consecutive time I've done um, night shift for. And I can tell you that after the first run, I was like, this is great. I can do this forever. I'm a a superhuman. I'm
3: nocturnal. And remind
1: (laughs) us again, night shifts are 10 to 6 or something? Uh, The ones I was doing, it changes depending on what you're doing and where you are, but the ones I was doing was 9 p.m. to 9 a.m., so Uh 12 hours, and then you'd often do five in a row. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, I felt, felt great after the first one, and then, The second one comes around and you're like, oh, okay, this is a bit... This is a bit worse, and then the third one comes
0: around, and you're like, "All right, I, I am death incarnate." Yeah, uh,
3: I've had enough. <laughs>
0: and and to you too, uh, Dr. Loma, you, you a night shift? Do you shift workers are known for having sleep strategies in the lead up, and then in the and then in the return to normality, so to speak? Yeah, you got look, something? I'm
3: still learning. I've, I'm between night shifts at the moment, and I've been up since three o'clock. Um, mm. So really? like if Anyone has any good tips? <laughs> uh, uh, I will gladly, I'm all ears for them. I struggle with yeah. Me, with here's the something- Hit us up
1: on the text line with some with some um, some good tips because yep. uh, I I've been taking the um, the I'm going to call it the gear change where I just accept the 26 hours of of no sleep on the days that I'm transitioning and it's not fun.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm in between nights at the minute, uh, so I've got uh, a few days in between, and I'm like, what do I do? Do I do I try and adjust back and then go back again, or do I just Push yeah. on through
0: on the nocturnal life. Yeah, yeah. we're going to um, shortly be talking about um, what's up with uh, GPs and bulk billing and GP careers, GP education. There's been all sorts of coverage in the um, in the media that people's radar might be picking up, and we'll be talking about that. Um Oh, in a few, in just a few minutes. And Dr. Dilemma, you've also sorted out for us an incredible guest yes, coming up about 10.30. I Tell have. us.
3: I'm very, very excited. Uh, we're having Dr. Dinesh Palapana uh, speaking on the show today. Um, he's an absolutely remarkable doctor who is in Queensland and he's uh, recently published a memoir. Uh, and. Oh, we'll hold off all the all of his accolades until uh, yeah, yeah. ten thirty. But um, yeah, very excited that mm. we're going to have Dinesh on the show today.
0: Absolutely, will be fantastic. Um, and then to uh, close out the show with our little trivial uh, segment, uh, pop goes your health. We're going to take a look at the third eye. <laughs> mm, I'm excited for this. One. <laughs> I am. I I think this is interesting and there is a bit of a trend emerging with how I've just accidentally started to develop a trend in what's catching my attention with this uh, pop goes your health idea of looking at things that have entered into you know general public uh, conversation about approaches to health and well-being. Um, This one's kind of interesting um, in similar ways to some others but it's got its own distinction that we've covered. It's got that little seed of science in there. Mm. There's, there's, there's some science about, um, you know, we know so little about our brain, mm. you know, um, so there's always room for, for some conjecture about um, how it might work. But it's also, uh, when we're talking about the third eye, um, uh, we're bumping into a lot of cultural tradition, Mm-hmm. And a lot of uh, religion and um, ancient mysticism and so on. And thirdly, we're bumping into ideas of the commodification of health. So people making um, a lot of money out of um, what's called uh, third eye cleansing or third eye activism or pineal gland activism and so on. So we'll we'll take a look at that in the last uh, little bit of the show.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R, or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
0: Neo and uh, Dilemma, a uh, suggestions just come in that the Sleep Restore app. Oh. Please, uh, a heads up on the uh, on the sleeping. I'm and that,
3: that one down. <laughs> that will be coming in handy later. Thank you. See,
0: this is what this is why we uh, we love our listeners so much. <laughs> well. That's right, and. For night shifts, Super eat school. oats, talk to your neighbours and make them aware. And, of course, subscribe to the station that puts the mind at ease. See, yeah, that's
3: I- right. That's the secret step. <laughs> <laughs> that's the most important one.
0: I actually dropped a, uh, a tub of fudge off to my neighbours
1: and said, I am sorry, but please be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. If someone could
3: tell the school kids that walk up and uh, at 9 uh, and 3 every right. day, if they could let them know that I'm on night shift, uh, um, yeah. that would really help out as well. <laughs> keep, keep them posted.
0: <laughs> Um, yeah, so those messages coming through on the text line, and we're just about to launch into some chat about um, GPs and in particular bulk billing and, um, and where GPs are at, um, or where we're at with GPs might be another way of putting it, we the community are at with mm-hmm. GPs. Um, and we're lucky enough to have somebody who is in fact wearing that moniker, Dr Sharma. So maybe if I could nudge you uh, to begin, Dr Sharma, what's your, what's your back pocket job description of a GP?
2: um handling people's uh, health issues right at the front line um and really when you think about uh, health and wellness and and sickness and surgery we, we get out uh, these images in our heads of of hospitals whereas the the reality is that 95% of all healthcare interactions happen out there in the community in a general practice setting uh, in a clinic, or I suppose now even with telehealth or maybe in aged care with a general practitioner. That's where most of healthcare happens. And as GPs, we are generalists. Our specialty is being uh, a generalist. Um, And what that means is often being that first point of contact for people when they get their symptom first arising and either, of course, diagnosing or treating it, or if things need to go to a specific specialty or a hospital, they've still gone through the filter of our assessment. Uh, and so, by the time that uh, patients are, you know, kind of end up uh, in a hospital or an emergency department, several things have already been either ruled in or ruled out. So, a really key part of healthcare, um, and it is by all accounts actuarial and economic the most uh, efficient and cost effective part of healthcare mm. too because one of the central tenets of medicine is that you know prevention is better than cure and of course uh, that's something that GPs are intimately involved in preventive care
0: so what you're basically saying is that there is nothing that we that a healthy health system should compromise on when it comes to having GPs as part of our health infrastructure
2: yeah, uh, we and I think that's just not debated in mm. the least. Even yeah. if all we care about is kind of the dollars and cents for the community um, and and taxpayers, where it is the most efficient part of healthcare. Right. Um, you know, To give you a good example, by the time you step foot in in the emergency department, because of the various cost structures and tests and treatments and funding models that that occur, uh, most people, uh, a patient, by the time they've walked into an emergency department, has is going to cost about four hundred dollars um whereas general practice yeah that comes at a kind of a fraction of the cost so at any point if anything can be go through the gp pathway it's almost always going to be a better experience for people full stop let alone uh cost effective for for the person not to mention for the system so if that's
0: the case um what it, why are we starting to see so much attention given to the state of the profession um in the media where you know so many things are coming into the conversation whether that be about bulk billing whether that be about the medicare system itself whether it be the role and function of gps the training of gps the recruitment the retention of gps mm. can you um capture a bit of that um for us and then dr dilemma's got something
2: for you Yeah, look, these are all uh, separate little threads, but they're all basically intersect at the same point, which is to say uh, that GPs find we can't continue doing the work we are doing um, full stop. Um, And either that means uh, that we are literally working less, or people, uh, medical students are not applying to do general practice, or uh, we are being forced to charge more money. Um, the, the bigger context this is occurring in uh, is not just you know, kind of COVID and all the kind of stresses it's put on general practice, but it's the way that general practice is funded uh, in this country. Uh, it's probably worth me spending about a minute just describing how, how the whole concept of Medicare rebates and bulk billing works, right? So that the big news that everyone is seeing in the media over the last couple of weeks is that GPs are not bulk billing anymore. There's far less bulk billing occurring than ever has. What does that mean? Long story short, when you go to see a GP for up to you know, say a 19 minute appointment, the government say says hey we will pay the GP's fee up to a certain amount, and that amount right now is thirty nine dollars up to uh, for up to a 19 minute appointment. Now what that means is that if if I'm the GP and you're coming to me as a patient, and the and the government say hey we're going to pitch in uh, thirty nine dollars for panel beater to come see me, if if my fee is thirty nine dollars. That works out perfectly. I'm charging just as much as the government's willing to to, to pay for you, Panel Beta, and that means you pay $0 out of pocket, right? And so we you – know, I'm being a little bit uh, loose with the technicalities here, but long story short, that's what we call bulk billing. When you go to see a doctor and you don't have to pay a cent out of pocket, the government pays entirely on your behalf. On the other hand, if I, as the GP, say – no, um, my fee is not going to be thirty nine dollars. It's going to be sixty nine dollars. That means that you then have to pay a gap. You have to pay a thirty dollar gap there. So traditionally, what's happened in Australia is we've enjoyed high levels of bulk billing. That is to say, you know, the majority of the time you go to see a doctor, uh, the the doctor will charge exactly what the government's pitching in as the rebate. Most patients don't pay a cent. Governments love boasting about this because it means that they can, t- that, uh, when it comes election time, they can say, look. Overwhelming majority of the time, you guys aren't paying a cent for for, for healthcare, we're funding this perfectly. And governments have been saying this for many years, saying that 80% of all consultations for GPs are bulk billed. This is not true at all. It is at best 60%. Uh, In fact, for first consultations, it's it's much lower. In fact, we don't need to tell people this, patients tell us this, that the money that they are having to pay for appointments is rising year on year. And the simple reason for this is that... Ah uh, living uh, uh, the costs of living and uh, and running a business are going up according to inflation, whereas the money that the government is allocating uh, allocating you, the patient, to pay to GPS, that rebate, that thirty nine dollars I've mentioned, that is not rising in line with inflation at all. So year on year it is becoming financially more difficult. For, uh, for for general practices to kind of sustain themselves in that way, and uh, uh, they are now in record numbers being forced to abandon bulk billing, charge patients uh, a gap payment, which which means that some of the you know the the, the poorest most disenfranchised people are uh, are left essentially without healthcare.
5: Hmm.
3: Mm, so problematic. I read a fantastic article this week in uh, the Guardian by a doctor in um, outer Melbourne, but Dr. Mariam Tohe. He was um, highly recommend that article, um, speaking about how vulnerable patients are um, really can't pay these these gap fees, and um, we need we need a we really do need a, a better solution for the for the long term. And we're seeing these incredible uh, thousands and thousands of GP. Uh, more GPs we're anticipating a shortage in, into the thousands uh, in the coming years how, dr sharma how do how do you think we can we can help incentivize general practitioner uh, general practice as a career choice for the medical students and junior doctors when it's now estimated that only about 15% of the graduating cohorts are are considering general pra- practice <laughs> when it previously used to be around half of the graduating cohort
2: Oh, I tell you what, Dr. Lemon. I tell you how we can't incentivise it. I was at Melbourne Airport a couple of times last uh, couple of weeks ago. There were literally billboards up asking people to apply to become a general practitioner. They are advertising (laughs) two doctors who might just be out and around on the street, or medical (laughs) students, more precisely, saying, "Hey, please become a GP." I mean, what is this? Like, you think about how bad things have to get to uh, to to try and actually have to do that. This is spot on, right? So typically speaking, half of all doctors uh, uh, have become GPs and that number has been steadily dropping off. Like you said, only 15% of medical students want to become a GP. Why? They are looking at the GPs who are working currently and they are seeing them describe year on year how the job is becoming uh, more difficult in many ways and the things that we are having to do in order to, to, to kind of sustain ourselves. This is not an attractive proposition at all. In fact, it's so bad that if you're working as a junior doctor who then goes on to the training program to become a general practitioner, your income falls, I'm not joking, by about Mm $50,000. So people are rightly going, this is madness. Why would I want to walk into this profession, firstly, with this massive pay cut as I'm going into training? But even after I finish training, um, the, the fact that the rebates are not keeping up with inflation, hey- being a general practitioner, it's not like you know, we're crying, starving, poor at the moment. But one thing about doctors, we're very good at looking at the long-term outlook. And we've all learned about how uh, exponential rises uh, and falls occur uh, thanks to COVID. And we're just looking at the long-term prospects going, hang on. The the rebates are not rising in line with inflation. I, I'm not. I'm just not going to pick this specialty. I will do something else. So there's a massive problem here when um, you know one of the most critical parts of all of healthcare is failing to attract medical graduates. And yeah, you know, when you're putting you know posters up on you know on, on the wall in in Melbourne Airport, you know something's gone drastically wrong. Mm. I think that one of the the the
1: things that I love about you know Australian healthcare the most. Is the fact that it is public. It is every time I make a decision in a hospital, I'm treating a, a patient who has Medicare. I don't have to worry about that decision for any financial impact. You know, the patient's not going to going to take that financial impact, and I can do my job as I see clinically fit. I'm not making ex- extraneous decisions based on financial parameters, and that's probably one of the reasons why I will never be able to work in a um, a system like you know the united states where which is a privatized healthcare system but the way that gp is moving is that it's moving towards a heavily privatized system where gps are forced to make a decision you know sometimes up to 50 times a day depending on how many patients you see that each time that a patient walks in the door it's will i charge this person person a gap you know that's a an active decision that you have to make every single time because the default is no gap, as it has been for uh, since Medicare was um, entered entered our system. Dr Sharma, how do you think that's impacting you know the I guess the welfare of our GPs? Uh,
2: you brought up something that is so close to my heart, um, I, so I can answer this question very directly. Um, I know everyone may respond differently in in these situations as GPs, but for me, that's actually one of the toughest parts Mm. of general practice. I have really uh, not enjoyed having to think about, on a per-consultation basis, um, how much should I charge this patient? It comes at an enormous emotional cost to me. Uh, In fact, over the last couple of years when I've actually taken up salary jobs uh, because of COVID, um, often I was getting paid just as what I was getting paid as a general practitioner otherwise, but the relief that came from not having to think about dollars and cents I, I, I can't tell you. It was like having you know, a, a weight lifted off my shoulders. And the other way in which we often have to think about dollars and cents, something I, I, I hate doing in general practice, is something that also Dr. Mariam Toki talks about. The uh, the, the doctor that was just mentioned earlier, who wrote that article, um, which is that the, the way the Medicare rebates work is they incentivize spending a shorter amount of time with patients. So often the the longer you spend on a complex uh, situation, say something that takes 25 minutes, 30 minutes, that's actually a very poor use of my time from a financial viewpoint. And so I often have to run completely against my personal instincts, which is to really listen to the patient story, delve greatly into it. Not just you know r- rapid fire. Tick, we'll we'll prescribe this. You know, we'll investigate this, but actually discuss the pros and cons. Do this whole shared decision making stuff that we were taught in medical school. It, it's uh, on the other hand, the, the financial incentives run completely opposite to that. To to make the consultation go go faster in that in that same sixty minutes. You know, if, if a doctor can see uh, five patients, they'll get paid more if, uh, than if they see two patients, even if they're doing the same amount of work and, frankly, more important work. So uh, the, the point you brought up of, you know, Deciding to bulk bill patients or not is one uh, decision. The other one is, of course, you know how many patients you see, and, and these things. You know, on, on I don't want this on my mind when I'm seeing patients. I just want to think about the medicine. I just want to think about the person, and it comes at an enormous toll. And uh, you know, I think this is one of the other things that's really uh, mentally burning out a lot of GPs. It's not just about you know the, the um, wanting to earn more money, but but frankly, just stopping that the kind of the burnout that occurs of uh, of thinking about the, the prospect of burdening patients with the costs.
1: You're currently listening to Radiotherapy on RRR. Just reminding you of the text line, it's 0466 981027. That's 0466 981027.
0: And we have had a text come in and it does uh, pick up uh, or at least allude to something that Dr Sharma was just saying there that... Um, Listeners might be hearing what you've just said, Dr. Sharma, in a particular way, you know, that incentivising for the shorter uh, consultation and that, that kind of thing. Our uh, listeners uh, texted in that, um, and, I'll, and I'll quote it because it's uh, it's well expressed, I find it intriguing that there's a consensus amongst my friends that they feel they're receiving superior service from a GP who requires payment. Mm-hmm. Bulk bill clinics are stigmatised as being a bit second class. Now, of course, we would argue that that's not the case, but there's an a rising perception um there can you join the dots on that kind of point of view and what you were just saying
2: i'll go further i'll go uh, so far as to say that there is a, an enormous element of truth to what what that's being said there um and it's not because you know doctors who are bulk are better or worse doctors that's not the point there is literally no way work in a bulk billing clinic unless you are seeing a very high volume of patients. And where does bulk billing medicine really get done or need to get done? In the most socioeconomically disadvantaged communities where people have the most complex needs. Absolutely, there is no way that you're, you're seeing half an hour appointments occurring in bulk billing clinics in a routine way. So... Uh, you know i am in total agreement with that um but, but but it's not because anything to do with the doctors frankly right. yeah. i think intentions uh, or their quality everything to do with the framework that incentivizes or deters a certain kind of medicine
1: yeah. mm. and i guess we'd be remiss not to discuss this um on this topic in that there's lots of good statistics saying that female gps are um quite disadvantaged in this current system because they tend to take longer patients. Patients tend to go to female GPs if they have more complex issues and it's contributing to the gender wage gap. Is there a way that we can, um, I guess, uh, help, help bridge this gap in our current system?
2: Absolutely, and uh, this is a real problem that that uh, uh, female GPs are b- bearing the brunt of. Uh, and that would be by uh, raising the rebate specifically for mental health consultations, something for which we know people prefer going to female GPs. Also, uh, incentivising longer consultations, uh, and also, uh, and a lot of the time, women, um, female GPs are also always uh, also seeing women who need cervical smears done and other. Um, uh, Another you know, examinations of women. I think we could really massively lift the uh, the rebate for those things. Will help equalise that that gender disparity.
0: I feel we've uh, barely scratched the surface on the topic, it, but um, judging by the media coverage at the moment, maybe it's something we should keep an eye on and return to. A, a suspect, especially with the new federal government and uh, health policy emerging, we might return to this. Mm. Hey, uh, Dr. Sharma, thanks for uh, being our our sage mm-hmm. <laughs> on all things GP this morning. We've got to turn our attention to uh, getting um, Dinesh Palepana on on the show.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
3: Our very, very special guest this morning, it's Dr. Dinesh Palapana. He is a fantastic uh, doctor in Queensland who works in emergency medicine. Dinesh is also a lecturer at the Griffith University and a researcher at the Menzies Health Institute with an interest in novel uh, novel rehabilitation spinal medicine. Beyond this, Dinesh is a trained lawyer and a fierce advocate for doctors with disabilities. Dinesh lives with quadriplegia following a high spinal cord injury that he sustained halfway through his medical school journey. Dinesh has been awarded the Order of Australia Medal and was last year's Queensland Australian of the Year. The most recent accomplishment that Dinesh can add to his very impressive resume is a newly published author of his new memoir, Stronger, which was released last month. We are so pleased to be joined by Dr. Palapana today. Welcome to Radiotherapy.
5: Hello, hello. Thanks for having me, team.
3: Dinesh, congratulations on your new book. I was lucky to get to read it uh, earlier this month, but for those of us listening who haven't yet had the chance to get stuck into the memoir, could you give us your best elevator pitch about what, what Stronger is all about?
5: Uh, elevator pitch, the pressure's on, so to make it good. <laughs> Uh, I was super nervous about this book coming out, uh, but it's essentially uh, my life from when I grew up in Sri Lanka through uh, war to going through law school with depression and then to having a spinal cord injury and quadriplegia and coming back to medical school and becoming a doctor. So it's a bit about life and uh, hardship and disability and the things I've learned along the way.
3: Well, I can highly, highly recommend it to our listeners, um, Dinesh, I wanted to ask you: health inequ- inequality is a term that we're we're mostly familiar with, but health inequity differs. So, with health inequity describes more of the the socially produced, sort of, unfair and avoidable differences in health status. What are some of the barriers to health equity that you have experienced or you've witnessed for those who live in Australia with disabilities? <laughs>
5: Yeah, and I think that's a really important concept because uh, I once read that a human being cannot be broken and it's society that breaks them and it's the structures that we put in place that makes it difficult for them. So I never really experienced uh, inequities until I had a spinal cord injury. And then I realised, wow, there are so many issues that people with disabilities generally face when accessing healthcare and... uh, these became particularly prevalent uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So there are a lot of things like physical access or a lack of physical access, um, appointments that are maybe not timed well, that maybe don't cater to a person's carers or language barriers or communication needs. Um, so th- there are all those kind of issues that affect the way someone access healthcare, and even like nuances of spinal cord injury and, um, perhaps not having the needed expertise readily accessible to care for someone with spinal cord injuries is an issue. But over COVID-19, I think one of the most uh, difficult and confronting things that I saw around the world is actually life-threatening issues like um, healthcare rationing affecting people with disabilities. So there were some countries that were deprioritizing people with disabilities from getting access to life-saving healthcare and, um I think those are the things that have been so difficult to see uh and hopefully we we've st- we're, our conversations like this will hopefully make way towards changing those things
1: dr. Palapana, it's um Dr. Nair here. I just want to say you're such such an inspiration, such an unstoppable force um with all everything that you've achieved with um you know some pretty substantial barriers. Um, that you've faced. I just want get to get an idea of how do you keep motivated in these kind of, you know, intense um, barriers that you've you've been you've been forced up against. Thank you so much. Um, you know i uh, i
5: never I never grew up wanting to be a doctor, and I didn't find medicine uh, until I got through until I was going through law school, actually, and I became. Uh, I, I experienced depression and anxiety and a panic disorder, and um, in the end, agoraphobia, where I was too afraid to even go outside the house. And I discovered medicine through that because um, I realized that I, I wanted to work with people, and um, medicine was a way that I could, um, you know, when it, because when I sought medical help for depression, my entire world changed. And I realized that it's a way to change people's worlds if uh, so I really always loved medicine after that, and um I think I found my place in this world through it, and it's just not something I want to give up so when i when I came back and when I went through that, um I didn't want to give up medicine, so I fought to get here and today, I think um having this experience with disability and seeing what everyone goes through. Um, it just gives me the energy and the want to try and make a difference. And I think that's really what life's all about, right? I was talking to a medical colleague yesterday. We were saying that um, you you really find happiness in looking outwards. Um, And my colleague had been through depression as well where we were... It's a very inward-looking thing um, by nature of it, but when you find your way and when you start to look outwards, it gives you the energy to hopefully do something for the community and our people.
3: Dinesh, you wrote in your book about a particularly poignant uh, section of the book about a medical school entry document that listed some inherent requirements that essentially aimed to limit access to medical school for students who have disabilities. You also wrote about initially being declined for junior doctor jobs after your graduation despite excellent grades and uh, truly remarkable accomplishments throughout your study. Could you speak... To to those and to some of the motivations behind founding Doctors with Disability Australia.
5: Yeah, thank you. And that that was that was actually it. You know, we um, I was I was really surprised because uh, I was living in 21st century Australia, and I I was I came to Australia from a different you know from another country as a migrant, and I've always had uh, good opportunities and education and everything. So. I've just been going through life thinking that everything is pretty rosy until I got to this point when I realised, wow, there is actually uh, discrimination against people with disability when it comes to education and employment. So um, seeing that document come out in 2015, I think it was, when I first came back to medical school, where it um, where if it was actually applied to me at that time strictly, I could have been excluded from medical school. Right? It had all these... Um, physical uh, characteristics and things that, uh, things that were pretty confronting, again, to see. Um, and then I, I came through the challenges of getting a job as a doctor. So when, when, because of all those things, I thought, okay, we need to do something to change it. So with a couple of colleagues um, who are also doctors with disabilities, we came up with the organization And uh, over time, we've really started to make some headway. Um, So that document has now changed. The medical deans have been great and uh, come up with a more inclusive document. Uh, We worked with a bunch of medical schools and the AMA, uh, AMA Queensland in particular. We've developed some um, uh, position statements and done some work towards making sure this flows through to uh, employers as well. I think the best thing is it's flown on to other disciplines. So I've had conversations with nursing schools, allied health schools, mm-hmm. places overseas that uh, have worked towards making this more inclusive profession. So I think that's been really
2: good. Dinesh, uh I just want to bring you back to that issue of uh, depression that you mentioned earlier. I heard you speak at a conference about it. It was one of the most vivid uh, descriptions, I think, of, of that condition I've ever heard. What, something that has been on my mind for years now is how you described that that was the toughest moment of your life. It wasn't seeing the conflict in Sri Lanka. It was not... Uh, you know, when you were still grappling with uh, w- with the quadriplegia, it was when you were depressed. I-, I wonder if you can speak a bit more to that, to why that was, and what you've learned about the things that are that truly bring us you know, most sorrow and grief uh, in life, as opposed to what we may imagine to be something like, you know, conflict or a devastating medical diagnosis.
5: Yeah, um, depression was. I mean, I was, I was in my early 20s when this happened, and I think depression has so many different facets to it, at least for me it did. Um, everyone's everyone's journey is different, but for me I know I know there's the medical aspect of it and that um, that is something that I dealt with my GP. Um, and then I also think I was probably really not in touch with what I was supposed to be doing, and there were all these things in society and all these expectations and all these um i think there was just just a disconnect between me and the life that i was trying to live um but in actually experiencing depression and the 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 how, how i felt it i think i just felt like i was like a ghost in this world right like i was just floating through a gray world and i couldn't really taste the food or feel the sun on my skin or hear the music anymore and um, so I just felt like it was just grey and it was flat and dark and I, and I was sad and um, scared with anxiety all the time but when I started to come out of it and I remember the very first day I drove out of my garage and I realized whoa maybe I've, I've emerged from this and because I could suddenly see the sun and the trees and the green and hear the music coming out of the stereo, and I could feel the warmth on my skin. And that feeling was so precious. Like, I was too scared. I was really scared that it would go away. And for a period of time, I was just like, I really don't want to go back to that place. And that that was a fear. But now having a spinal cord injury, right, like many years later, I ended up becoming paralyzed from the chest down. And when I woke up in the ICU, I felt like a prisoner in my body because even if I wanted to get away from that situation, I couldn't. Mm. But today, today I'm sitting here talking talking with you, talking about all these experiences, and I feel like I feel free and I feel like I've done so much. So what I've learned, for me at least, is that depression was way more paralyzing than the spinal cord injury ever has been. And that's a pretty profound thing for me to realise. Mm.
1: That's such a poignant description of something that, you know, so many, so many of us could um, associate with. I think, Dr Palapana, um, I'd, I'd love to hear what advice you'd give to, you know, um, disabled members of our, of our listener group who are thinking about tra- trying to, you know, not even enter healthcare but enter a job that they, they think is insurmountable because of their disability. Um, I think there were many people
5: uh, who told me that I couldn't do this. And there were many people that said it's going to be too hard or it's going to be too difficult or it's going to be impossible or this or that. And you know, in society, you know, whether, whether we have a disability or not, there will always be people that uh, have an opinion on how we should live our life. It might have been the teacher or the family member that have said something or it might have been the friend or the peer or the bully or whatever. But you know what I realize is that one day, uh, 20, 30, 40 years from now, whenever it might be, I'm going to look back at my life and I'm going to try and take stock of how I lived it. And at that point, none of those people are going to be there and it's just going to be me holding holding the account and they're not going to be there they're not going to care but I'm going to care about what I've got at the end so I think we have to fight for what we want and we have to go for what we want and we have to try our best and be able to get to that point and say I did everything I can to live the life I want and that's what it comes down to um so I think uh if you're thinking about pursuing something, if you're thinking about pursuing a certain career or goal, don't listen to anyone else and give it your all to try and get there.
0: Dinesh, that, that's uh, really quite motivating and inspiring. And, and um, I hope that sinks into, especially people who are starting to think about career moves and where they're at with, with things. Where quickly running out of time but there's something that dr dilemma said in introducing you that uh, caught my attention we can't let you go without asking you can you it was mentioned that one of your interests is novel rehabilitation spinal medicine what does that mean Mm -hmm. yeah
5: um so this uh I always look towards what what's going to happen in spinal cord injury whether we're going to have therapies for paralysis and over the last few years there's been some really interesting science uh, coming out of the us and switzerland and it's been based around electrical stimulation um, and drug therapy um, which are using a lot of like existing drugs in some of these trials and another one is um thought controlled rehabilitation where they've used Um, EEGs or electroencephalograms where they read the uh, brain activity of a person and translate that um, through exoskeletons or other means into movement. So we've seen that a combination of these uh, things in really small studies have shown to give back some motor function in people. And um, our work uh, is based around that and we're trying to put together these things to, uh, and we've, in Queensland now, we've got five people going through a proof of concept and data collection to see if this works and we can replicate it.
3: Dr Palapana, I wish we had more time to to chat with you this morning, but uh, sadly, sadly, we have to crack on. Uh, Dinesh, we need more people like you in medicine. Thank you for coming on the show and, and huge congratulations on the book. To our listeners, make sure you get your hands on Stronger, either from your local bookshop or you can listen to it on Audible, narrated by Dinesh himself.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: We turn our attention for these last moments to the segment we're calling Pop Goes Your Health, where science and society collide. And in this particular topic, we certainly have that going on. We're talking about the third eye, or what science might call uh, the um, pineal gland, and what um, other traditions might call the third eye. There was a snigger there, Doctor. Now, what, what's uh, caught your... <laughs> no, what's just, you? No,
1: it's just just a way of saying that's what science calls this this anatomical structure. But <laughs> yeah. I, I think before we, we continue, um, I think we really need a little like a jingle for Pop Goes Your oh, Hell. We... <laughs> are, we, uh, are
3: You volunteering to create one? <laughs> no, no, no one would want to hear that. No,
1: no
0: one... your, your singing voice. <laughs> no, it's a good point. You, you um, you're picking up on a vibe that there's this um overt demarcation between science and everything else is that is that the vibe yeah and
1: this like i guess for the third eye it's a bit different as we've highlighted at the top of the show in that it is a very um like prominent part of some cultural traditions yeah, and yeah. is an important part of some cultural traditions yeah. which you know we can't really um like i'm 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 not going to question i'm not not going to to poo poo the idea it's it's important to a lot of people and a lot of cultures and but i think uh more That's to the right. point of this particular segment is the uh the, the commodification mon- yeah of the it. monetization of um yeah
0: this so well happy- said, yeah. So so anything that we say about the third eye um, and its um, relationship to mysticism or spirituality, mm. and and people will bump in it into it in yoga classes, for mm. example, um, is not to disparage um, absolutely uh, not, not to disparage that in in any way. Um, we're recognising a distinction between the science and the mysticism and mm. the spirituality and the attempt to actually get those two things mm. to relate. But pop goes your health is interested in all the people who are trying to make mm. some cash out of it, mm. and so the thing that caught my uh, eye was this idea of uh, decalcification of the mm. third eye. Now, calcification is something that happens throughout the body, mm. as I understand it, in, in many different organs, in many different ways. Mm. So to decalcify something is, is something that might be worth consideration. But if you uh, use your Google fingers, you can quickly come across a whole lot of um, decalcification or activisation um, of the uh, third eye you know, kits and mm. things of this nature and um and that's what catches our attention in pop goes your health but but um you're right to say um and while you're on the mic there uh, dr neo from a medical point of view how does how does medicine talk about the pineal gland it's it's
1: you know touched on in that it's a hormonal um you know release structure and that's um, that's it.
3: It's, uh, we could use a uh, little help from our pineal glands on night It's yeah. uh, so got a <laughs> right. role in, um, in secretion or regulation yeah. of melatonin, the, the, the sleep homo- hormone, as we call it.
1: Um, um, but, but
3: it's we... also not very well understood in, t- in its entire function. It's, no, I think, quite poorly um, I... understood by the medical community.
1: And we don't. We certainly don't um, talk about you know distinct calcification of the, the pineal gland in ways that we can. Um, we can decalcify
0: it. Right, right. So the quotes that I plucked out um, uh, from my, my Google search was that... Um you know, But there's still some science uh, paying attention to things like its relationship to hormones mm. and hormone production, particularly melatonin. Um, but uh, it may be, maybe a better knowledge of it will tell us more about other things like uh, cardiovascular issues, menstrual cycles, schizophrenia, cancer, and possibly some other things. But then you look at the language used on the websites promoting these uh, decalcification kits and so on, and, and it will be language like the calcification that disrupts a spiritual journey journey mm. and then the kits are then sold on the back of that with with suggestions of things like ranging from very common sense things that probably apply to so much of what we talk about in health mm. and well-being on radiotherapy step away from processed foods um eat uh foods high in chlorophyll, you know, like, like like your leafy greens and so on avoid fluoride gets in the mix mm. and then you start getting to things like Take Activator X, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a like a, a replicant of uh, vitamin K2. Um, use apple cider vinegar. Apple cider vinegar gets recommended in just about everything in um, mm-hmm. pop science at the moment related to diet. Um there's uh, – I'd never come across um, Shilajit. Have you come across Shilajit no, before? No. No. It's um, harvested from high mountain rocks in areas like Russia, Mongolia, and Peru. Mm. You can see the dollar signs going off right there. And Chaga tea um, and cook with gota cola. Um, and then something uh, that's more sensible and it relates to melatonin is embrace light and dark, you know, the, the, the sleep cycles and so on. That's that's the thing with a lot of these is that they they bury these – you know these purchase
1: kits and the and these you know vitamins and and minerals that aren't used for other other things in between all of this very sensible information. They that eat well, sleep well, um, be healthy, but then
0: also purchase this. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Dr. Sharma.
2: Hey, folks, isn't it curious the way we've had this conversation? We have put in two caveats ourselves on this conversation, which I think are exactly the kind of things that the alternative medicine industry likes to exploit. We firstly said, well, you know, we obviously want to don't want to trot on the sensitivities, the cultural sensitivities that come with the concept of the third eye. And secondly, we said that, look, the science is you know, not yet well understood. Mm. Imagine how well this plays for a business that's trying to commodify these mm, things. Yeah. The fact that we feel we can't um, overtly make big truth claims so they've kind of got free range to say what they want i yeah. just thought it was an interesting thing that we were doing in this conversation
0: yep yeah, no exactly dr sharma and that's the snapshot of pop goes your health right there hey um thanks dr sharma thanks dr neo thanks um uh, dr dilemma thanks to our special um guest uh, dr dinesh palina hi this is panel beater thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's radio therapy a weekly radio show dedicated to health medicine and well-being Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.